0: Um, good morning, uh, welcome to church this morning, if you've not been here before, um, my name's Sam, uh, I'm married to the lovely Sarah over there who was singing, um, so what I lack in looks and talent, I, you know, make up for an enthusiasm. Uh, <laughs> um, so this morning's Good Friday, so we're going to be uh, looking at really what is the centre of our faith, which is Jesus dying on the cross. Um, and without the benefit of uh, Easter Sunday, it's, it's kind of a hard day to look at with a hopeful lens, as it were. Um, but it is a day—it is a day of hope, as we'll find out. And um, we're going to start straight away. I'm just going to read—I'm um, just going to read from uh, the Bible, Matthew chapter 27. Um, it's going to be on the screen. I've got it in front of me. I'm going to be reading it out. But if you have a Bible too, then please. Uh, Follows verse twenty-seven. Then, so just uh, as a bit of a recap, for I start, um, last week Neil preached a- around uh, Palm Sunday, and we sort of had the what we call the Holy Week, leading up to Good Friday. Uh, Jesus has had his Last Supper with his disciples. Uh, he's gone to Gethsemane and prayed to the Father. Uh, he's been betrayed by Judas into the into the hands of Uh, The Jewish leaders, um, and now he's finally been handed over uh, to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, "'Hail!' king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple, curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs, the tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection Um, so, as we read these words, it's quite bleak. Um, it's hard to sort of sort of uh, look at this narrative uh, and to see hope in, in what's happened. How could this day possibly be a good day? And we see various different dispec- perspectives of people um, at the crucifixion. At this point, we don't completely know where the disciples are. I'm sure some had had run off um, and abandoned and sort of abandoned Jesus on the cross Uh, we see that there were some women who travelled with Jesus ministering to him Uh, who were standing uh, by the cross Um, we see the sort of Roman centurions and the the sort of Roman soldiers who are doing the equivalent of playing cards sort of almost like bartering for his clothes they're clearly sort of not um, enraptured in in what's going on and then there's people mocking him there's uh, people walking past who were probably uh, just going in or out of the city who were hurling insults at him, um, and the Jewish leaders who were saying, essentially, come down from the cross if you are the son of God. So there's lots of different perspectives of people looking, looking on to Jesus dying on the cross. We've got two people beside him who were, who were also um, uh, condemned to crucifixion, um, and it says that they also were mocking him. Um, and I think at this point, if I was a disciple, uh, in, in, in the context of the crucifixion on this day, on Good Friday, I'd be, I'd be going to God, like, what is going on? What is going on? Um, and I don't know if you feel like that sometimes, where you're, you're like, why does, you know, why does life feel like the rug's been pulled under me, from under me? And that, that's a question I'd sort of be coming to God with at that time, I think, if I was a disciple. I'd be asking, probably quite quite rightly in some ways, God, what is going on? Um, I think the first thing that I'd probably do is, is come to God with that prayer. And having seen this person who I'd spent the last three years of my life with, um, who I'd kind of given up my livelihood to follow, who I'd sort of hung on his every word, done the stuff he told me to do, tried my best, didn't understand most of what he said. Um, but got to a point where we sort of, see his life supposedly um, being snuffed out. So I think I'd I'd probably get on my knees and go, God, what is going on? Um, And then I think the second thing I'd do, um, I'd probably do this all on my own with the door locked, (laughs) trying to keep away from as many people as possible. Um, I think the second thing I'd do is I'd grab hold of the Bible. Um, And obviously, uh, I wouldn't have had... As a a disciple, I wouldn't have had a leather-bound, I don't know, amazing Bible or a smartphone. Um, And I certainly wouldn't have had the New Testament. So we wouldn't have had the Gospels, we wouldn't have had the letters, anything like that. We would have just had um, the Old Testament, um, or as they would have just called it, the Bible. Um, And I I would have just taken hold of it and tried to find out what is going on in my present circumstances in the Word in front of me. Um, i don 't know if you 've sort of reached a, ever reached a point where similarly you 're trying to sort of work out what god 's doing and you find it in the Bible you, you find a verse you find a scripture you find a psalm and that seems to perfectly articulate what 's sort of going on in your life at that time and it sort of gives words to how you 're feeling and then you can pray that back to God um, so if I was a switched on disciple which I don't know if I would be. Um, I'd probably go back to some of the scriptures that Jesus prayed and spoke about himself. And Jesus always, quite often, would, um, well, not always, but he spoke from Isaiah a number of times. We, we see in the synagogue um, when he's preaching that he, when the scroll's handed to him, uh, he goes to Isaiah and reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Um, So I'd probably look around there. And this morning we're just going to look very briefly, Mike, um, at uh, Isaiah 53. Um, We're just going to look at Isaiah 53 because I think this is just such an amazing scripture which articulates this seemingly dark situation that's going on in front of the disciples. Um, So, again, I'm going to read this and then we'll just quickly go through it. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground, and had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Um, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I, I think that's just the most incredibly vivid description of Jesus dying on the cross. And quite amazing that that was written seven centuries before Jesus was even on the planet. Uh, and we can see in here something of the character of Jesus. Um, I think if I was a disciple... I'd, it's, it's always in the movies when there's that sort of lone ranger who's trying to crack it, and he's got post-it notes all over the wall. But I do wonder if the time limit wasn't three days, uh, but three months or three years, if the disciples would have eventually sort of cracked it. And, you know, I found it, it was Jesus, so, you know. Um, and um, obviously, we, they didn't have that luxury. And by the time we get to Easter Sunday... Um, Jesus, we, we we have this story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the disciples, and they're like, oh, "Don't you know what's going on? Have you? Where have you been? You know, everyone's talking about it. Jesus is, has died," um, and he sort of plays dumb, which is brilliant, um, and also one of my favourite verses in the Bible, where it says Jesus pretended that he was carrying on down the path, um, and then they stopped and said, "Oh no no, come come for dinner, come for dinner." Or oh, come in, stay with us. Stay with us. So I just would have loved to see that play acting. I think that would have been would have been brilliant. Um, but amazingly, he says he says that they were they, they were slow to see what the prophets had already written. He's like, I don't I don't have the scripture in front of me, but they were they were slow to sort of grasp what was already in the Bible, which I think is kind of for me. I think that's like kind of harsh. I'm like. It's not it's not that straightforward, but um, but clearly Jesus is fundamentally in the, the the word of the Old Testament, and and we sort of see him coming to the fore. Um, so just looking at just looking at some of these verses, who has believed, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And obviously, when we look at that, we sort of I think primarily we think, okay, who's believed the message? of the servant, of the suffering servant, who's believed the message of the Messiah. And I think as a disciple, I'd also be questioning my own faith. I'd be like, I'm missing faith in this situation. Seemingly, the whole world has fallen apart for me. And someone who I've invested my life with, uh, a friend of mine, someone I love, who I'm following has, has died... What's going on? And I think one of the things that the disciples needed at that time was faith. Faith that God is faithful. Um, and again, I don't know in your own life if you've been in a situation where you feel like the rug's been pulled under your feet. But faith at that particular time is knowing that God is good and knowing that he's on the case already. Um, And sort of in the confusion, in the sort of maelstrom that's going on around us, trusting that God is good. Um, We see the next verse, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Um, And we read later that um, when Paul says that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, The weak things of the world, shame the strong. And this scripture here is kind of talking about where the Messiah, where Jesus is coming from, what his context is, what his background is. And it's not that impressive. Uh, He wasn't born in Rome. He wasn't born in Jerusalem. Um, He was a very ordinary man. Um, Later, when he's in ministry, people, people say, isn't this the carpenter's son? And that's almost like a, it's quite dismissive. Um, and also when uh, Philip is finding Nathanael, he says, we found Jesus, the, the, the one that Moses wrote about in the law. Come, like, come and see him. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael brilliantly responds, Nazareth? can anything good come out of Nazareth? Um, and, and for us, it's like it's, it's, it, there is an encouragement there that we could swap that with where we live. surbiton Cheam, Kingston, Watford, wherever. Can anything, can anything good, can God work in that place? And obviously we, we can look at that and go, of course God, like God can work in any, any place. He's not a respecter of Rome or Jerusalem or London, um, but God uh, will work in every and any place. Sarah and I used to go to a church in North London, and um, it it's yeah. a um, different denomination, controversial. Um, and um, it was a great church. They had a church service at four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, which is a classic sort of student, young person, time to have church, long lie-in, you can have a lovely, delicious lunch, that sort of lull in the afternoon, just do some church, and then uh, go to the pub in the evening. Um, so naturally, it attracted a lot of uh, students and young people. Um, and I remember uh, after, after the church service, we'd go to the, go to the pub, and we'd socialise and chat, and it, it was sort of a, a, a time... When the church like grew really rapidly, kind of as a result of some of those social um, social uh, gatherings uh, that happened after after the services. Uh, I remember one time we we were in the pub after church, and um, I saw this guy sort of standing on the fringes, um, and he was totally nondescript. He 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 had he had just a plain fleece on. He certainly wasn't wearing the trendiest clothes that a lot of us were wearing. Um, and um, but he was present. He was he was he was there. He was sort of listening, paying attention, trying to trying to get involved. So I, I was chatting to him, and I said, "Oh, so you know, how did you how did you come along to the church? I haven't seen you before." And he said, "Oh, I was just walking past and." because um, we met in an Ethiopian church building, and it has on the front of the church, Ethiopian church. He was like, oh, I was intrigued by Ethiopian church. I uh, heard some some music, and so I just thought, well, I may as well have a listen. And sort of had peeled into the church, sat at the back, listened, and then when they'd said at the end of the service, now we're going to go over to the, over the pub, please come along. He was like, fair enough, I think I will, we'll, we'll go along. Um, there was nothing... There was nothing ostensibly uh, impressive about this guy. Um, I asked him his name, and he said his name was Emmanuel. Um, And uh, I remember at the time uh, when I was talking to him, and later, because I never saw him again, I remember thinking, I wonder if he was an angel. Um, In Hebrews it says, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. uh, By doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Um, A bit like a uh, mystery shopper. God sending angels to a church just to check out how we're doing. Um, And the thing I liked about that as well, he 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 was just such an ordinary guy. And Jesus was like that. Jesus was an ordinary guy, and I think that's probably why people were so overwhelmed when he his ministry took off, because they were like, well, I know Jesus, he's the son of so-and-so and the brother of so-and-so. He's, whatever that is, that's not Jesus, because he's going crazy. Um, the the other thing about Emmanuel, is, uh, this guy at the church, is I remember asking him what his occupation was, and he said it was sign maker, which I think is quite good. Sarah suggested at the time that he could have said he worked for the White Company, which I think is another good one. Um, Yeah, so I don't know if he was an angel or not, but um, yeah, I guess we'll never know. Well, we might do one day. Um, So, sorry, bear with me one second. Um, I like to think of it like this, really, that the kingdom, it's not selectively cited when it looks at people's appearance. I kind of think the kingdom's blind to people's appearance. That he doesn't see, he's not impressed by, if you wear fancy labelled clothes, but similarly, he's not going to reject you because you wear nice clothes. He's not selective. God is absolutely blind. He, he sees you for who you are not necessarily what you look like. Um, the next verse says, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. And this is, again, an incredible verse. The, uh, the great theologian, John Stott, uh, said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a god who was immune to it? I've entered into many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, the remote look on his face detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I have to look away. And in imagination, I turn instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That's the God for me. He lay aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us our sufferings become more manageable in the light of this. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. Jesus understood sorrow. Uh, The Bible says that he was a man of sorrows. So I think it's quite amazing, because you kind of would expect God incarnate to be kind of like that chipper guy that is really annoying and everything is always great all the time. Um, but, he, but he's not. He was familiar with suffering, familiar with pain. I find it personally, I just find it amazing that he didn't entertain self-pity because I think if I were through even a tiny bit of the, the, the journey that he did, I'd be like, woe is me. <laughs> Guys, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling here. Really, really struggling, Um, and I try and, (laughs) I don't know, somehow make myself feel better by having self-pity, but Jesus doesn't do that, which I find really staggering. God knows what it's like to suffer, and free will for us means that we will experience sorrow until the final day when God wipes away our tears. Um, When he was on Desert Island Discs recently, um, Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. Sorry? Not Jesus. Yeah. Wow. Um, I'd be really intrigued to know what his songs were, though. Uh, so, uh, sorry. When, when um, Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, was recently on Desert island disc, which is how I probably should have begun that sentence... Um, uh, he, so he was on Desert Island Disc recently, and he spoke, he spoke of the death of his seven-month-old uh, daughter uh, when she was killed in 1983. Um, his wife, Caroline, uh, was in the passenger seat being driven through Paris, and uh, his daughter, Joanna, was in the back seat in a carry cot. And uh, he says, I was finishing off some work in Paris, and Caroline set off with a friend. Someone else was driving, and they had a car crash. We went up and found Joanna... Was in hospital and died five days later. It's just the constant reminder of the uncertainty of life. The only certainty in this life is Christ. Everything else is contention. Kirsty Young, the presenter, remarked for, how, uh, for many people, tragedy was a moment when they think, if there was a God, he wouldn't let this happen. Justin Welby, who went on to have five children with his wife, replied, yes, that's absolutely true, and you find there are, there are a huge number of people who say, that was the moment where I found God. I never try and give answers except to point to the Christ who suffered on the cross as a young man, unjustly and unfairly. The next verse says, he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. The amazing thing is, God doesn't leave us in our sorrow He removes it from us. C.S. Lewis says that we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I think there's truth in that. There's something about pain that is like a megaphone that essentially says this isn't the way it should be. Um, This isn't the way God intended it to be. where where it says bore our suffering, it's from a Hebrew word that means to lift up and carry a heavy burden. Um, I love the fact we don't have a God who's far away. It's a God who will come near to us and uh, lift the burden from our shoulders. Henry Nguyen writes, suffering invites us to place our hurt in larger hands. In Christ, we see a God suffering for us and calling us to share in God's suffering love for a hurting world. the next verse says he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we're healed this is really I think the heart of the gospel Um, in the New Testament there are five different words for for sin um, which is kind of a word that we don't really use that much today Um, the first is uh, parabasis I'm going to get all of these horribly wrong um, which is like uh, a trespass or a transgression, so stepping over a boundary. There's anomia, which means lawlessness, so taking a law and ignoring it completely. <laughs> um, uh, Adicir, which is unrighteousness or iniquity, which is almost like a, a corruption or perversion of character. Similarly, um, paneria, which is a evil of a, like a g- degenerate type of evil. So it's sort of like a Corruption or perversion, but the most common word for sin um, using the New Testament is hamartia, and it kind of means missing the mark. So imagine a bow and arrow; you're shooting it, and you and you and you miss, which is what I did when I did archery. Um, and this is the gospel for us. The Bible says that all of us, whether we like it or not, or believe it or not, all of us have have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, again, you could think, oh, well, I'm a good person, that's, you know, pretty harsh, because I'm nice to people, I give two pounds a month to Oxfam, Uh, I'm kind, I don't kill people. But I think it's something of the amazing things that God has for us. Uh, Almost God's standards uh, are so incredibly high for what um, for what can be attained, that without even knowing it, we all fall short of that standard. But the amazing thing is, um, the, wages, the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, without even having to do anything, basically God gets the arrow right in the centre of the bullseye, without really us having to do anything. And he did that because He loves us, and it's a free gift for us to have, and that is the gospel. It's, it's not that we have to um, religiously uh, go to church and do amazing things and give money away and be incredibly saintly, which are all amazing, great things. Uh, all it is is that we simply accept the fact that he loved us and he took away our punishment. The amazing thing is this verse says that the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And That's two amazing things that God's given us as a gift as well. He's given us peace. And again, I don't know about you in your life, have you experienced life being crazy and volatile? But God brings you peace. Similarly, he brings healing. Um, He brings healing from guilt, from hatred, from doubt, from shame. Uh, Christ takes broken people and puts them back together again. And then lastly... We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. We've, we've all sinned, we've all gone astray, we've all missed the mark, whether we think so or not. Um, but essentially, God has given all of us the gift of, of, of the kingdom, given us all um, the pardon for the things that we've done wrong. I think the word that's most amazing about this verse is all. The fact that the kingdom is for absolutely everyone. Uh, it's for the robber on the cross next to him who Jesus says, this day you'll be with me in paradise, even though for being crucified, you can imagine he probably did some horrible things. Um, but the kingdom is for, is for absolutely everyone. Also, it's, it's it's tricky because I think we're so inclined to want to kind of judge and measure other people compared to ourselves. Um, Philip Yancey says that Christians get very angry towards other Christians who sin differently to they do. Um, and it's kind of like a double standard. Um, I find when I'm on the train, one thing that really bugs me is when someone eats hot food right next to me. I don't know if you find that, but when I'm sort of either going, mostly going home from work, and, you know, I don't know, it's 8 o'clock, and some guy's got some curry or something or a big burger, and it's stinking the whole carriage out. It really bugs me. But I do do the exact same thing. I, I do the exact same thing. And as I was sort of chomping on my Burger King one day, I was thinking, I'm doing the exact thing I hate. This is probably really annoying for everyone else. Um, and the truth is, we're kind of all like that. We all we might have different standards, but God God kind of sees us all in the same way. Brennan Manning, who is um, who was rather a Franciscan priest, um, struggled with alcoholism uh, and has, has written some incredible books. Writes. Because salvation is by grace through faith, I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hands, as we see in Revelation, I shall see the prostitute from Kit Kat branch in Carson City, Nevada, who tearfully told me she could find no other employment to support her two-year-old son. I shall see the woman who had an abortion and is haunted by guilt and remorse, but did the best she could, faced with grueling alternatives. The businessman, besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. The insecure clergyman addicted to being liked, who never challenged his people from the pulpit, but longed for unconditional love. The sexually abused teen molested by his father and now selling his body on the street who, as he falls asleep each night, whispers the name of an unknown God he learned about in Sunday school. But how, we ask. Then the voice says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There they are, there we are, the multitude who so wanted to be faithful, who at times got defeated, soiled by life and bested by trials, wearing the bloodied garments of life's tribulations, but through it all clung to faith. My friends, if this is not good news to you, you have never understood the gospel of grace. And this is the gospel that we believe. Uh, Sarah and I have a friend called Aaron. And um, don't worry, Aaron, this, this story isn't actually about you, uh, as you'll see. Um, Sarah and I have got a friend called Aaron, um, who from the age of 12 uh, started, taking, started smoking, smoking C class drugs. Definitely not Yara. Um, and by 14, was so addicted to, to marijuana that he started experimenting with stronger substances. Um, he was kicked out of school and soon became addicted to heroin. Uh, I remember him saying to me that he was amazed because one day the bank gave him a credit card. He couldn't believe that they'd be so stupid. And him and his friends basically maxed it all out on heroin and and. and basically spent it all and, and binged. Um, he did manual labor and window cleaning to try and earn a bit of money, and would often steal from the people he was cleaning the windows off, um, and spend the money on drugs. One day he was cleaning the windows of, a, uh, of the house of an elderly woman. He was impatient to get the money so he could spend, spend it on, on, on drugs, and he was awaiting a court sentence for a burglary from a previous window cleaning uh, experience. Uh, that would almost certainly guarantee him time in jail. Uh, The elderly woman said that she would give him the money, but only if he let her pray for him. He just wanted to uh, sort of get it over and done with, get the money and go, Uh, so he just said yes. As she laid her hands on him in the kitchen, the love of God filled his heart. He had never experienced anything like it before. He started crying he knew something was happening. At his lowest moment, Jesus entered his life. He immediately stopped taking heroin and told his social worker he wanted to go to church. They didn't believe him, um, but they asked uh, the pastor of a local church who they had a, 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 their building opposite, the uh, social, social work offices, to visit him. It was actually a vineyard church. Um, So he'd given up heroin, but he'd not quite given up marijuana. So he was uh, listening to some Bob Marley uh, smoking out his flat, and there was a knock at the door. Um, And it was the pastor of this church. So he's like, ah. So he, you know, sweeps away all his paraphernalia, uh, sort of turns Marley down, and then completely stoned, opens the door. And it's this pastor from the church. And he, he comes in, and amazingly, this guy didn't just... I don't know, judge him and close the door and say you're clearly not in a fit state to talk to anyone right now. Um, But entered the house and, you know, talked to him. I think he gave him a Bible, invited him to church. And bit by bit, Aaron got his life back on track. Um, The judge acquitted him of his burglary charge, which was a sort of small miracle in itself. And the Prince's Trust gave him a small grant to set up his own clearance business. Um, Gradually, he gave up smoking weed and just gave his life fully over to Jesus and see him now, it's, it's, it's like a completely, completely different person. I think Aaron's story uh, is amazing because it just goes to show that the gospel is for all of us. It's for absolutely anyone who will come to Jesus and um, God's grace is for everyone. I love how Philip Yancey says that grace is like water because it, it flows to the lowest parts and I, I kind of think that's true gospel and the grace of God is for for anyone that will receive it. So there's no getting away from the cost cost of the cross. Um, But as Jesus died it, it says in scripture knowing that all was now finished to fulfill scripture he said I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So, as a a disciple looking at this event that's going on in front of me, those words would ring in my ears. It is finished. Um, in, in the Bible study they have a, a principle which is called the principle of first mention which is essentially if you want to understand the doctrine go back to the first place it was mentioned and that will give you some context for it. Um, and when, when, when Jesus says it is finished it kind of takes us back to, into the Old Testament. It takes us back into Genesis. God works for six days and he says it's complete, it's finished and now I will rest. When Jesus dies, it's the beginning of the Sabbath. It's, it's time to rest, and I think it's a reminder for us that the work of the cross is a complete work. The work of God on the cross, even as brutal and as, and as horrible as it was, he has done it. It is finished. As we look ahead to Easter Sunday, we will hear about his resurrection But I think it's amazing that we can take this day to remember what he did on the cross. Um, At at the Last Supper, Jesus, um, when he instituted the Lord's Supper by giving bread and wine, he said, take, eat, um, break this bread, drink this wine, do this in remembrance of me. And we can do that today. We can remember Jesus. We can remember that the work of the cross for God to take away the sins of a fallen world, to heal brokenness, is finished. That work is finished. We can't add to it. We can't do things. We can't, um, we can't impress God with holy works. We can't add to the cross. It is finished. The striving is over. Um, I became a Christian in 2006 when um, I was a student. And for me, being a Christian meant being as fervent and on fire as you could possibly be. Uh, If there was a 24, nay, 48-hour prayer vigil I was there, um, I'd travel to far-flung places to hear the most cutting edge of messages. Without realizing it, I'd become fanatical and I'd wrap my identity up in being on fire for God as opposed to just being a son of God. Relationship with God only meant something to me if it involved doing lots of things and being seen to be doing them. I got to a point after a few years where I'd totally burnt myself out. I'd worn myself out and was making myself more and more unwell. Last, I reached a point where I, I almost hit, not literally in any way, but I, I hit a brick wall. Um, I'd made myself so unwell that I was signed off work. I was totally incapacitated in bed for a month and unable to work for six months. Forced to a standstill, God showed me that my salvation wasn't based on anything I did or do. And that even if I didn't do a single thing for the kingdom ever again, that it was still enough. He loved me. At the time, my mum um, worried, had travelled across uh, the country, because we were based in Cheltenham, uh, with some food to give me um, when, I was, when I was in, in bed. And uh, when she was driving over, she lives uh, just near Watford, my parents live just near Watford, driving over to Cheltenham, she felt God speak to her. She felt God say to her, you've, you've traveled two and a half hours across the country because you love Sam. I traveled from eternity to the cross because I love him. And that's true for all of us. God traveled from eternity to the cross because he loves us. It's not something that we deserve, it's not something we can ever work for, but it is something that we can receive and remember.